0: Hello, this is Graham Plaster, CEO of The Intelligence Community, Inc., and also host of the podcast that you're listening to, which is an interview series with a number of influencers across the defense and intelligence innovation ecosystem. Today I have Dan with me, who's the CEO of Exit Strategies. Welcome, Dan.
1: Hi, thank you very much for having me, Graham.
0: So I just want to give all of our listeners an opportunity to learn about Exit Strategies. Uh, they're a member of TSE Consortium, and uh, also uh, an active member in the TSA network. So I want to ask you first, Dan, if you could just give us a little background on who you are and how you came to uh, be leading Exxos Strategies.
1: Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I'm the President and Chief Executive Officer of Exo Strategies, and we're a small business located in Colorado. I uh, started out as a federal contractor um, over 30 years ago, principally in support of civil and military airspace programs um, with a stronger emphasis on human spaceflight and infrastructures for space operations. Um, When I talk about space operations, I really talk about uh, launch infrastructures, communications, data collection, distribution, and management. I'll talk a little bit more about why we picked that area in a a moment. Um, But I've served on several federal and international task forces since 1992 including the Columbia accident investigation that was for the space shuttle um, that was lost and crew of seven uh, back in 2003. I was involved in uh, helping retire the space shuttle and complete the space station um, and and involved in operational readiness and safety of the International Space Station, the shuttle and the MIR program, that was a joint U.S.-Russian program, and several post-challenger space shuttle safety reviews. I'm currently serving my 21st year as a special government employee to a joint U.S.-Russian Advisory Commission on International Space Station Operational Readiness and Safety, and I received my doctorate in aeronautics and astronautics from MIT and my bachelor's degree in aerospace and mechanical engineering from Princeton University. So when... That's great. So when we started... I'm sorry? Yeah, go ahead. So... When uh, I started ExoStrategies 11 years ago, one of the um, things that I noticed was that space programs, space systems, um, satellites, um, they were often canceled due to lack of budget. Um, but when it comes to the data and the resources necessary from, uh, from us from, from our uh, capabilities in space, whether it be meteorological satellites, communication satellites, human space systems, intelligence satellites. As long as we're a spacefaring nation, we have to have the infrastructure to launch spacecraft, to communicate and control them, to collect the data, to manage that data and rapidly distribute that data to the end users. And so, The challenges that uh, we were facing at that time um, um, were that, about 10 years ago, were that budgets were dramatically decreasing. And the first place to look for resources are to cut uh, funding from infrastructure. So the infrastructure started to age, starts to have problems, starts to um, lose the ability to support those missions. And so we developed a practice to try to understand how to best manage the infrastructures in declining budgetary environments to manage risks and ensure that the operators um, that require information can get that information effectively um, and um, at, high, at high availability. So our focus as a company really is structured around that data uh, Uh, That space operations infrastructure and delivery infrastructure supporting um, multiple areas uh, with principal emphasis on uh, programs such as uh, those for intelligence collection, data distribution and management, and uh, remote sensing for civil and commercial needs, and of course our ability to um, maintain our assets on, on orbit.
0: Okay. Yeah, thanks for the rundown. So what who are your current clients, and uh, what, what are some um, recent milestones for your company?
1: So um, we we have a very uh, – have had a very interesting evolution as a company. Um, we initially started out with a principal base of operations in Colorado, uh, serving the national capital region, uh, mostly where the decision makers, the key decision makers were. Our Our company really evolved – uh, to support high-level decision support, and I can chat about that in a, in a little bit. Um, but that has now uh, helped us expand to a different customer base. We have a very strong customer base here in uh, Colorado as well as in uh, California, Los Angeles in particular. But interestingly, we now support uh, combatant commands. We are located uh, at eight locations, CONUS. And ten and two locations um, in overseas, Germany and Colorado. I'm sorry, two overseas locations in Germany and South Korea. And and our principal customers now have have shifted. Um, we moved really from a civil space corporate company fo- with a with a focus on human spaceflight systems now to supporting principally the Secretary of the Air Force. With an emphasis, for example, on the Capabilities Development and Management Office, where we support the combatant commands' intelligence centers across the globe, and uh, a NATO classified intelligence system, that uh, is one of our larger and um, and and uh, more evolving programs. As the needs uh, start to tar- start to grow, you can't always predict where the threats will be and when they'll evolve. So that's a highly dynamic program that we support. We also support the Air Force through their Space and Missile Systems Organization, in particular the Range and Networks Division, where we support, as I said before, the space operations infrastructures. And we we still take special taskings uh, for NASA headquarters. I'm a special government deploy, as I had mentioned before, so we do a lot of work um, with the International Space Station, but we tackle some other problems as they arise uh, as well.
0: It must be pretty fascinating with uh, the your background and in working with um, joint uh, activities with with Russia and at the same time dealing with intelligence and in the past year of uh, you know political debates regarding Russia.
1: oh, it is um, it's it's really quite remarkable. i I first got appointed back in 1997. At that time, just a, a, a couple years before that, uh, our vice president and the vice uh, premier of, of, of Russia basically shook hands and said that we have to develop an international partnership to um, to explore space. It was too expensive for either of us, and so we got involved in trying to merge two fundamentally different programs and two fundamentally different con We had to merge their capabilities for spacelift, their philosophies for developing spacecraft, their philosophies for providing communications, command and control, and their philosophies for um, integrating uh, people. One of the most fascinating parts of it was to go over and start looking at building a spacecraft in different stages, taking advantage of uh, systems that were over in the rush in Russia at that time in America, and then building systems uh, jointly and designing systems jointly so that we could uh, collaborate in space. That was absolutely unheard of, just you know, uh, just a bit over two decades ago. One of the really fascinating parts was getting together with the two different cultures and uh, looking at how cosmonauts and astronauts work together. One example is that the cosmonauts train for objectives very much like in a submarine where you're gone for a long period of time and when a problem comes up, you just have to figure out how to solve it. For us as in the United States, we trained our astronauts so they knew everything about the system. They had so much crammed in their brains that they actually started to go through a process of detraining for every day that they were on orbit. So there were some limitations to what we could do. So when we trained our astronauts, we trained them to be masters of everything, whereas the Russians trained their their cosmonauts to basically handle and tackle um, in. Problems as they arose, and rely on um, on uh, other capabilities to, to maintain to maintain and operate the spacecraft. Bringing those two objectives together was fascinating because it was a fundamentally different way for each of our uh, cultures to do to do work. And over the past two decades, you know, we've gone through a number of, of different. Uh, um, you know, uh, internal challenges. Uh, Russia had the collapse of its ruble. It had the, uh, the, the, uh, the, um, the growth, traumatic growth of its oil um, capabilities. We ended up uh, having 9-11 and, and uh, moving uh, into a, a two-tier war in Iraq and Afghanistan. And then, of course, we've had, you know, increasing tensions between our cultures over the – our countries over the past uh, decade. But the collaboration from a perspective of space has been very, very strong, and that's been something that has actually been very helpful, I think, for uh, U.S.-Russian relations.
0: Yeah, there's a great scene in, um, I think, The Martian where, uh, you know, it's portrayed that the U.S. and China – Uh, the scientific communities are able to dialogue in a way that kind of supersedes or goes above the political uh, melee. And it sounds like from your experience, that's been the truth that with the U.S. and Russia, that um, the collaboration that's happened over space exploration and science has really been something that creates a conduit of communication that goes above politics.
1: I, I do think so. And I think that there's, a very important aspect where we have um, six crew on orbit at any given time. It's an international crew. Um, sometimes there's a Russian commander, sometimes there's an American commander. But the bottom line is we've got six people on orbit right now, that if we have a bad day, it um, risks those six people on that space station. And it doesn't matter whether you're Russian. Whether you're American, whether you're Japanese, whether you're from the European space agencies, we have to solve those problems together. And that's something, you know, from an operations standpoint is very important. And that's really something that I I think I can't stress, that one of the differences between ExoStrategies and and some of the other companies in this industry is um, we are very, very specific in how we um, bring on people into the company, there are a lot of companies, and I've been to many, that have tremendous and terrific engineering staffs. But the challenge is with those engineering staffs is they don't have strong ties to operations. And as a consequence, they'll design systems, user interfaces, and things that have a wonderful technical solution but are really not um, solving the operator's problems. And when, when we're on the space station and things can evolve very quickly, or we're in a combatant command environment where, as I say, these threats happen on their schedules, not on our schedules, we have to be able to come up with solutions, decision support capabilities, recommendations to, you know, key executives in the government that they can act on and and they can take to the bank. Um, We do a lot of work on risk and managing risk. And I'm not talking about just project risk. That's an element of risk but something we call enterprise risk. And the concept of enterprise risk is um, the risk to achieving the capabilities that your customers Mm -hmm. need. And one of the things that we do in that is um, you have many – you have a – there is this uh, um, area called enterprise architecture. And enterprise architecture typically looks at how – Enterprises are designed and maintained to support a function. We extend that because enterprises don't exist for themselves. They exist to provide services to other enterprises. And as a consequence, the enterprise managers or owners, which are typically in the work that we do, federal federal agencies and, and federal employees, they have to make decisions based on the budgets that they've been provided for their enterprises. But they have to be mindful that given constrained budgets, when they don't have enough money to do everything they want to do, there are only three things they can do. They can cut their objectives, they can flip the schedule of the evolution of their their systems or enterprises, or they can accept a higher level of risk. As they accept a higher level of risk, that means that there's a higher level of risk of delivering services to their end users. And so we have to be very mindful that as you start looking across these multiple prizes, multiple combatant commands, multiple organizations, that when you accept risk at one level, at one enterprise, that risk is often then transferred and accepted without knowledge by your, um, by your user organizations. And when we deal with, the operators that are, um, you know, um, in many cases, risking their lives to uh, protect our country and our, our, our allies, we have to understand that engineering solutions have to take into account the fact that those users um, are operating in an environment where risk has been accepted. So we have to be able to convey that effectively so that um, we are not injecting problems into in, 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 into our solutions, and we're providing really high-quality, rapid decision support. And that's one of the reasons why I really have to emphasize that engineers, as we are, uh, really are, are, are we really are focused from the perspective of our engineering solutions on the operators. So we do not constitute any team in our company unless there are people with strong operations experience involved in that team.
0: So you touched on a lot of really incredible points. Um, One is the importance of DevOps, you know, developing things or engineering things around the operators and in direct contact with operators, or in your case, hiring engineers that also have a lot of operational experience. Uh, you've also touched on uh, kind of (laughs) the concept that came up earlier when you are talking about the difference between astronauts and cosmonauts, which is basically uh, innovating in a way that allows you to be very precise and de-risking, at the same time being agile and being able to adapt, which sometimes those two approaches seem to be at polar ends from each other uh, because we think about the, the risk taker as someone who can adapt when we think about the, um, the precise uh, engineer as somebody who is going to have to follow a lot of rules. Uh, so finding some sort of um, nexus between those two modes is, is a challenge. But I think that's a hot topic right now, like we said with DevOps, because we all realize that an engineer can create a great product, but if it doesn't have product market fit or if, you know, if the enterprise doesn't have a direct use for the engineered product, then it's going to get left on the shelf, you know. So,
1: um, oh, you've hit a real hot button of mine, Graham. Um, in fact, I have this, um, philosophy that, you know, with the exception of, say, NASA, that gets to do cool stuff because that's their charter, we don't do anything now because we want to, we do things now because we have to, we have to manage risk. Um, we have to um, protect our country, we have to support our allies, we have to manage risk. And so we have developed a process called Agile Risk Management that allows you to constantly reassess threats, reassess risks, and allocate funds to try to mitigate those risks. It doesn't mean that we've got to take a really bad risk and take that risk away, but we have to have a balanced approach to do that. And one of the things that's so fundamentally important in this is the concept of DevOps. We all know, especially in this crazy contracting environment, that um, when the need is defined, now government goes through this process of request for information. Then they develop a draft request for proposal. Then they have a request for proposal, and then you have a period of time where the contractors are – are making their proposal, and then there's a long, protracted period of time, sometimes uh, a year or more for evaluation. And then, of course, when uh, a a disgruntled contractor loses, there's a protest period. You could have the start of a contract happen three to four years after that contract has been defined, that requirement has been defined. And by the time that contract gets let, which may be a five-plus-year contract, you're now working off of a statement of work that may not match the evolving threat environment that we're in right now. You may be in a development program that has requirements and specifications that is irrelevant or is using old technology to what our warfighter or our space operator um, needs. And so this concept of DevOps is very important because, You now reduce the – you basically create something that has to provide functionality rapidly to the operators. You can't now go and say, hey, I'm going to do a five-year development program, and in five years I'll see you and I'll deploy the system out at the site. You have to build – you know, they used to call it spiral development. Now they have scrum development. You have to build these cycles where you're providing relevant capabilities and getting feedback from the operators – immediately so that we can put that back in the engineering solution. I think that's fundamentally important because we've seen just over the past few years how cyber threats have evolved, how, um, how um, different uh, countries and nations elect to uh, operate um, in peacetime where we are starting to get, you know, uh, um, from a cyber perspective, for example, we, we, we practice in peacetime. People are practicing. We see that all the time. How do we constantly react to that? If we react to that by going and saying, oh, I have a problem, I'm going to go and ask industry what the problem is, I'm going to develop a draft RFP, I'm going to develop an RFP, I'm going to implement a system, well, five years has gone by and the threat has evolved rap- more rapidly than our systems had So this concept of DevOps is fundamentally important. The concepts associated with contracting have to evolve to support that, in my view, or we're constantly going to be reactive as opposed to being proactive.
0: I I think that there's definitely an appetite for uh, acquisition reform on the side of the government. As I talked to uh, Pete Newell on one of the previous podcasts, he He said, you know, we need to innovate around acquisition, but we can't just speed up acquisition because it's a conveyor belt of stuff. And the government uh, suffers from a problem of not only uh, acquisition, but also from requirements. And if if they're not issuing the right requirements to uh, the private sector, uh, if we speed up that conveyor belt of stuff to the government, then they're getting the wrong things faster. Um, So they need reform around requirements also. As you said, the way that they write the PWS is is really important. Um, And I think the long-term play is obviously looking at a lot of different types of rapid acquisition vehicles and certainly TIC consortiums looking into that, uh, trying to figure out if OTAs are a good way to go or or other types of um, vehicles. But at the same time, I think uh, we see some of the tech – technical companies that want to continue down the road of the, the long play or the five-year sales cycle, they're migrating to selling platforms rather than, a software because a platform will allow you to do that DevOps um, process inside of it if you can sell the platform that the government or the client buys off on using AWS or, or some or Azure or something like that. Then at that point, then you have something to work with inside of uh, to do DevOps.
1: Yeah, and, and and that's where I go back to, you know, a statement I made about our company early on is that we really focus on the infrastructure because the infrastructure is that platform for innovation. Um, we have infrastructure so that um, Elon Musk at SpaceX and Blue Origin can, can provide commercial launch services, and there are others as well. We're seeing commercial satellite telemetry tracking and commanding capabilities for federal mission support. We're seeing these systems and services that are being provided more and more by commercial companies, and I think that that's a, 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 an interesting trend because the um, capitalization of these assets is, is being borne on by the commercial companies, and they're building a broader technology-based so that the government doesn't have to pay full freight. They also don't have to define requirements. They can procure services, and they can start moving towards uh, toward identifying those services that they're willing to pay for. We've all seen programs where 2% of the requirements drive 25% of the cost. I see that this, this, this new um, use of commercial service providers and commercial infrastructure and commercial capabilities is probably going to start doing some behavior modification so that we're going to start looking at those elements as intrinsic elements of our architectures that we use um, to provide our services. However, we have to also look at what is an intrinsically governmental function that cannot be abrogated to the commercial providers? What is it that we can't do, but what is it that we can't rely on commercials? Because when there's a day, the government is going to persist but we can't necessarily count on the commercials to be there in a, in a bad day. And so how do you craft resilience to your architectures? How do you craft the ability to take advantage of commercial capabilities to buckle into your infrastructure, whether it be through standards, whether it be through platforms? Those are the sorts of things that I think that we need to be focusing on because we don't have enough money to build dedicated, uh, uh, federal systems any longer for everything that, um, that we've done in the past. We have to start looking at more effective budgeting. We have to take advantage of service costing where we're not the sole consumers of those services so that those costs to deliver those services are allocated across a broader user base than just a single customer. The problem with that is that adds risk because now when you start relying on systems that you don't control and don't own, you have risks associated with the businesses. You have risks associated with their ability to provide secure services. Um, and we all know that uh, more points of entry into, say, an IT system, the more likelihood that you could have a, 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 a successful um, compromise by a by an external threat. So. Yeah. That's that's a real challenge. How do we do that effectively?
0: So um, I'm going to move on to our last uh, two questions here, and we can kind of put a bow on it. So uh, you have a lot of really fascinating experience. Uh, ExoStrategies is doing some exciting work. Uh, for those who are listening to the podcast, uh, tell me either a book that you read recently that you think everyone should read or maybe uh, a mobile app that you're using. Um, or a website you go to, some sort of resource that you would recommend to people?
1: Well, it's, um, it's really quite uh, interesting that you had mentioned The Martian. Um, I've read that book uh, several times, uh, well, many times, actually, more than three times. I love that book because it, it – it, 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 I know this sounds kind of trite, but it's, you know, The, the, the Success of the Human Spirit. That when all else is – when everything is going bad around you, if you sit, you think your way through something, you can solve virtually any problem. Now, there are some things about The Martian that I, as an aerospace engineer, you know, roll my eyes at, but that's not the the point of it. I loved that book. I loved that book because it brought me me back to um, uh, the Apollo 13 Um, problem back in, uh, back when many people weren't even born, um, where we had uh, an explosion on a spacecraft and they did not give up. They solved that problem. And I just, to me, it's just a can-do attitude that, that that really demonstrates the ability to work through adversity. You know, everybody... Yeah, one one
0: line uh, from that movie that sticks out to me is, and I've used it myself since seeing the movie, is just, let's work the problem. You know, you get stuck in the rut, and uh, it's easy to look around at the negatives, but um, a a good scientist or a good mathematician will say, well, let's let's just look at the problem, and let's work the problem. So I love that mindset, and like you said, it's an optimistic one of the future and of space, where in a time when we do have some rather uh, dystopian views of how things could turn out. And I know that Elon Musk has wanted to reproject a new positive, you know, vision for the future, which is why he launched his Tesla up to space and snapped those pictures, which is were pretty fascinating.
1: Yeah, to David Bowie's Starman, which is, you know, resurrected that for me. But right. I'll tell you one other yep. thing that was kind of um, kind of great for me um, and it goes back to this uh, uh, Russian collaboration The head of my group is a former Gemini Apollo astronaut named Tom Stafford, uh, Lieutenant General, retired. He uh, was on the um, um, joint Apollo-Soyuz program with Russia back in 1975, I believe. And uh, his counterpart was a guy named Alexei Leonov, and they had the first international handshake in space. But Alexei also was the first person to walk in space. I've met him several times through this, and I actually got to, through my group with Russia, um, see a movie about his uh, life and his mission into space where he was the first person to walk in space. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of bad days that he faced during that. And, again, it's the you know conquering of the human, human spirit. He didn't give up. Um, and... It's really quite an incredible movie. If anybody has a chance to see it, I don't think it ever circulated in the U.S., but that's really the the, the book most recently, and the movie most recently, and Starman the song most recently that you know have come to uh, mean something to me.
0: Okay, thanks. And uh, lastly, uh, for Exo Strategies, what are some things that uh, people can participate in, either as job seekers or as Business partners, or if they're uh, listening and they're from the government, uh, what types of contracts are you guys interested in right now?
1: Well, we focus on decision support. We focus on—we've actually developed some tools. Uh, a tool of ours called Architects that allows uh, broad collaboration and the trading, as I had mentioned before, of architectural objectives, enterprise risks, uh, and costs to develop budgets to try to do this. Uh, affordability practice that I I mentioned. So we typically try to work with those organizations that have architectural evolution and um, to address um, threats and risks that are constantly evolving and pressing on their infrastructure needs. As a consequence, because of that, our work really touches um, um, those critical areas that require top-secret clearances people with um, TSSCI, and people who have polygraphs, um, um, who have active polygraphs. We do do unclassified work um, as well, but in the National Capital region, in Colorado Springs, in Los Angeles, Nebraska, Florida, Germany, Korea, uh, we are looking for people who have um, operator experience, have active TSSCI's, um, if people have polys, that's terrific because some of the work that we do for the intelligence community absolutely requires it. Come take a look at our website, uh, com and take a look at our open positions. Um, if you don't see one that suits you, um, please send in resumes because we are always looking for good people, engineers, operators, Um, support staff, graphic artists, people to help on proposals. Um, We're looking for teammates. um, But as I said, our emphasis really right now is intelligence and space um, for the um, intelligence organizations and the civil and military space programs. However, we're starting to diversify into Army space as well. So if people are interested in teammates that are agile, one of the benefits of our small business is – People only have to come to me to ask for um, permission to do something, and that's typically a two-minute phone call. So uh, we're very agile, and we're very interested in um, and thankful to be a part of your community.
0: Okay. Well, thanks so much for being a part of this podcast, and that's going to wrap up our call.